Thank you for joining the Georgia Chamber podcast. For 105 years, we have been the leading voice of business in the state of Georgia. Through these podcasts, we want to help you better understand the issues facing our state and how your business can grow and prosper. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, go to www.gachamber.com. Well, good morning. I'm Chris President, CEO of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and I want to welcome you to our Resiliency and Recovery Roundtable, a series that we've been putting on since April of this year. Uh, you can join us, obviously, you're live with us right now, or you can watch us uh, playback on our YouTube channel, or you can follow us and listen to this as a podcast on our podcast channel on Spotify and on Apple Podcast. I want to thank our sponsors for our Roundtable series, our good friends at Wells Fargo and AT&T. Uh, they've been incredible partners for us and appreciate their support. Also want to encourage you to go to gachamber.com uh, slash COVID-19 for the latest updates. We know that Governor Kemp will be reissuing his emergency orders sometime later today or tonight. You can get the latest updates and any changes of that. We'll have them live for you first thing in the morning. And then I also want to remind you that we are hosting our fourth annual Rural Prosperity Summit next week in Tifton, Georgia, socially spaced on October 7th. Uh, we've got limited in-person seats or you can buy virtual tickets. One of our discussions will be on healthcare as well and the impact, uh, just like we're talking today, but particularly on rural Georgia. And we'll have that conversation again next week. So we've got a, a just an incredible panel for you today to talk about resilience from the standpoint of really some of our major hospital systems in the state. We have Candace Saunders, who's president and CEO of Wellstar Health System. Uh, Paul Hinchy, who's president and CEO of St. Joe's Candler Health System. Dr. Jonathan Lewin, uh, CEO and chairman of the board of Emory Healthcare. And as always, our good friends at Deloitte who are helping us through this process have provided a national um, expert in this, Dr. Randolph Gordon, who's managing director of Deloitte Consulting will be talking to us about emerging trends in the healthcare field. And I just want to start by thanking all of you for your work through the pandemic. And now as we move into the recession, you guys have been rock stars. Your staffs have been absolutely incredible taking care, not just of people with COVID, uh, but, but folks with other um, health needs in a very difficult environment. And I just, on behalf of the business community, we understand what you've been through and we appreciate your leadership uh, from all of your institutions. Got a lot of questions and a lot of ground to cover, so I want to jump right into it. And I want to start with, with Paul, my good board member from Savannah, Georgia. Um, Paul, those employees have been working literally around the clock uh, since probably February or, or maybe even before. I'm curious about the, the resources that you've provided for your staff. Uh, how you help them balance their, their personal life, their professional life. My sister's a nurse, and it's been extraordinarily difficult during these times. And I, I worry about those frontline healthcare workers. Tell me how you guys have helped them down uh, at St. Joe's. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, first of all, let me say it's, it's a pleasure to be uh, anywhere with Candace and, and Dr. Lewin. They're kind of the uh, first chair of health leaders in this state. Uh, so it, it's really an honor uh, uh, to, to be here. Uh, you know, in answer to your question, uh, when, when I hop on a plane and go from Savannah to Atlanta, when the, when the attendant goes through the drill with um, buckling your seatbelt, and, and they, they usually tell you, you know, if you lose oxygen and these oxygen masks come down and you travel with a child, put the oxygen mask on you first. And, and to me, that sounded kind of backwards. But in many respects, metaphorically, that's kind of what we're doing here in the hospital. We can't take care of anybody. Your sister can't take care of anybody unless we take care of them. And, and the pressure, as you said, is phenomenally intense. So there's a, there's a phrase that's used um, in the military, which we kind of adopted, which is called exigency relief. When someone is deployed, and we've told everybody we're going to be deployed from March of 2020 to March of 2021. That's it. You got to buckle in, and we got to figure it out. So in the military, they have different oases where they let people go. So we kind of adopted that model. Um, we started with the high pressure points, and that is 
what can we do to make sure people feel comfortable that they can actually come into the hospital to take care of the patients? When the school systems uh, and the, all the caregivers uh, closed in the summer, we essentially took over the schools. We rented uh, an elementary school, we rented a high school, uh, so that um, our, our staff ended up dropping off their uh, children uh, under canopies and we registered them and we ran the school. And during the summer months when all of the childcare was shutting down, that put a little oxygen into all of them. That, that was a phenomenal thing. Uh, it's kind of like my marriage, you know, if, if the home front's not doing well, I, I'm not going to be focused there. I'm just not. So um, we started with, with that. Then um, during the course of the year, we had different other things. For instance, um, last week we had dinner on us. We have 4,200 coworkers and you could get online and you could order a dinner and you picked it up and then uh, that way you didn't have to cook that night. Um, we've hired uh, barbershops and salons to come in and uh, you could get haircuts. I got one, it wasn't that good, but that's what happened. Uh, so we were trying to figure out, you know, anything to save you time. Um, then the other thing we did since the schools have gone back is our nurses had to decide who's gonna stay home. Their husbands or wives have been furloughed, um, I don't know about everybody listening to this call, but if I had to teach my children at home, that would be a bad experience. So what we did is we said, all right, we'll get into the elementary school business again. We rented four YMCAs, uh, three in Chatham County, Effingham, Liberty, one over in Bluffton and Hilton Head. We hired the, hired the YMCA staff and all of our employees would drop these children off at different strategic points uh, and they did all their e-learning in the Ys. Uh, they would dial in K through five. Uh, then we paid the Ys to uh, feed them and then the great thing is at the end of the day they got some fresh air uh, because they went out in the ball fields and they got some socialization uh, and then uh, the, the people would pick them up at five o'clock. So to try to alleviate the distractions, the acute distractions in their home life so they could take care of like your sister, uh, the patients. And, and I think the answer to the question is, is not only planning PPE and all of that, but really dialing in the psychological barometer of your coworkers. What are they actually going through day in and day out. Not so much are they all gowned up with these things and we have to do that, but really as, as caregivers slash mental health workers, which a lot of them are right now because they've, they're, they're taking care of the families and the patient. So I think that's some of the things that we've done and, and so far the feedback's been good. Oh, I think there's a lot of lessons there to be learned, not just in the healthcare industry, but in the business community as well, about prioritizing your employees first. Candace, what did it look like, kind of the same thing for you, for your system uh, in a major metro area that had an early hot spot? Um, anything different that you guys did? Any other lessons learned for how you take care of those, those frontline employees? Candace, you got to un unmute yourself. Yeah, first of all, let me just um, say, um, echo what Paul said. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here with my fellow uh, colleagues. Uh, we've gotten very close uh, during um, this worldwide pandemic. Uh, we always had great relationships through our Georgia Hospital Association, our American Hospital Association, and many of the professional groups. But I will say that it's nice to have colleagues and friends uh, when uh, you're facing um, the challenges that we have faced over the last seven months. I do wanna also just say to the chamber that um, our Georgia chamber, all of our chambers, our local officials 
uh, and our, the governor of the state um, have been just tremendous support because without partnerships, we could not have gotten through this period as we support our people um, as they take care of the patients. And the one thing I just wanna give a shout out to the Georgia Chamber is for your support on the COVID liability protection because that was so important and you really helped push that over the finish line uh, with your uh, uh, business support uh, because it was something that was very important to, to us uh, as we uh, navigated the pandemic. But I, I would just, um, everything that Paul did, it was like, he, you know, you have to look at your people first. Um, because if you don't have the people, and we were worried about our people because of the virus affecting them, as well as their loved ones. So you had to go right into problem solving and how do we protect our people? Uh, and we did play um, um, the things that Paul talked about as we looked at how we made sure that their health and well-being was first and foremost as we navigated the pandemic. One of the things I would mention, though, was this whole discussion about the personal protective equipment. You know, what we were navigating early on in the pandemic was we were facing shortages. So we were trying to be very, you know, conscientious about the use, but we also wanted to make sure that all of our people felt safe that were in the workplace. And so there was a lot of um, you know, back and forth with our colleagues across the healthcare community on how do we best do that so that we were sending a very consistent message to our um, doctors, nurses, and caregivers. The other area that I would emphasize um, to what Paul said was this whole idea of their well-being because everything we put in place was to really make sure that we were not only looking at their physical health and their overall physical protection, but their emotional well-being. Because many of them faced fear, anxiety, and other um, emotions as they showed up every day to take care of our patients and to support their fellow teammates. And one thing I would mention to Paul's point we actually called on some of our internal experts to help us with this. Our overall behavioral health team became a frontline member of the team as they helped to assess um, the actual anxiety levels of our teammates. And as we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, it was sky high. So much unknown, so much uncertainty. As we moved into the um, first couple months, that settled in again, but then the different shockwaves occurring in our community with the civil unrest and some of the other uh, things that we needed to help our community and support our community about uh, presented again, a big spike in the anxiety. So we were actually providing uh, consultation and counsel counseling services to our frontline team members on duty after hours to and then continue to assess where they're at. And what we saw is every time there was another shockwave in the, in the community, it also affected our team members. And we had to bring in more services and more support to help them. And this is something that we've also been uh, called on to help our businesses as well as our schools. Um, and as Paul met, mentioned, this whole school situation for parents and grandparents became particularly challenging as they tried to ensure the education and the care of their children. So we had to um, also invest in services to help with that aspect of their lives too. Thank you, thank you Candace, I, I appreciate that. Dr. Lewin, I wanna to turn to you and switch questions a little bit. Um, we've talked about the early days of the pandemic, but Emory's played such a critical role, both in your partnership with the CDC and with your own research there. Can you share with us where we are with the vaccine development, uh, with the trials, um, and then any you know, information about how you would distribute the vaccine, you know, how the hospitals will work in that system. Just love your input there and your thoughts. Great, well, thank, thank you, Chris. And thank, I'd like to thank the chamber for inviting me to, to join you today. It's really an honor and a pleasure to join with Candace and Paul uh, on this panel and, and Randolph as well, who we have not met, but look forward to hearing uh, as, as well. Um, so, uh, and, and just a, a quick, a brief comment on the last one, because many of the sure. things that Paul and Candace said, sort of the same, the same idea. Um, well, just the one thing in addition I wanna add that, that I think is important, whether it's 
in healthcare or in any of the businesses that the chamber members uh, may be in is the, the value of a thank you. Um, in addition to the wellness and resilience programs we put in and the psychological psychiatric counseling and all that, just being out there and thanking people, asking them authentically, how are you doing and listening uh, has tremendous impact on the morale of the team. So back to vaccines. Vaccines are an area that, that uh, we've been very involved with. Uh, one of our, our, one of our uh, um, leading researchers actually is the co-chair for the national vaccine um, network across the country. So we were one of two uh, places that the original Moderna vaccine, which many of you have heard about, got quite a bit of good press. Um, we were one of the two sites for its phase one trials. And back early in the spring, um, we vaccinated a number of first younger folks and then uh, did another phase one in older uh, volunteers. And, uh, you know, that went beautifully. Uh, we're now in the process of the phase three Moderna um, trial, and we're enrolling many, many patients out of the 30,000 that are going to be enrolled for that as well as that goes to a multi-center trial for enrollment. There's been a lot of good progress on vaccines. Um, the, uh, there are actually over 160 vaccines that are in different stages of development around the world. And right now of these 30 of them are already in, in human clinical trials and several of them, six of them here in the US are in phase three trials. And just since I, I assume that most of the people on the call may not be vaccine experts. Just understand a phase one trial, again, which uh, uh, many of the vaccines are in now, is simply to say, is it safe enough to continue evaluating it? So really the people who sign up to be volunteers in phase one trials are really heroes in a way, because they're saying, well, let me, let me see. I don't know if it's gonna be of any benefit, but let's just see if it's safe. When it gets out of a phase one trial, it means it's safe. Uh, the phase two is again, a, a further uh, evaluation, but phase three is really where we're interested because that's where we say it actually helps protect people. And, and typically a phase three trial, uh, Moderna, for example, half of the people in the first phase of the phase three trial um, get actual vaccine, the other half get a placebo, a sham injection. And then you see how many people actually get sick with COVID and importantly, how severe is the illness? because vaccines don't necessarily completely prevent infection, but hopefully they prevent severe outcomes. So the, fa the phase three trials are going, are going well, um, that we're enrolling well. Um, there have been some challenges in getting people in the African-American communities to enroll, because we really want to see the phase three community of, of volunteers mirroring the people who get the disease. Uh, but those are, those are going well. and. Um, as uh, Dr. Fauci has said, and a number of others, I think it's highly likely that certainly by the end of this calendar year, um, we'll get the results from the phase three trials. And my guess is that they're gonna be positive. At least one and probably more are gonna be positive. Uh, one of the things we looked at is the development of neutralizing antibodies to prevent uh, severe disease. And several of the vaccines in our experience do provide these antibodies. And, Again, that's being seen around, around the country and around the world. So the question then goes, once a vaccine is shown to be effective, how do you actually get it um, into people in the community? And that's where it's gonna be um, a, a challenge because the day that it gets uh, approved and there's a lot of chatter around making sure that it's safe when it gets approved, and I think it, it will be, um, is then how do we distribute it? And clearly the first people to get it are going to be the healthcare workers. It's a matter of protecting the workers. As Candace mentioned, and, and I'm sure Paul would say as well, um, we've seen that healthcare workers who are using PPE properly are very well protected and are not getting uh, COVID more than the community. In fact, are catching it um, out in the community and not in our, in our hospitals and doctor's offices but still they will be amongst the first to get uh, the, the vaccine. And then the second will, people, will be people who are particularly vulnerable. The elderly uh, people 
uh, over the age of 65. Again, that's sounding less and less elderly every year for me, but um, again, the folks over 65, people with underlying conditions, they'll be the next group to get it. And my guess is that, you know, as most, uh, most of the experts have been predicting, um, the general population will probably start getting it in the spring, maybe late spring, summer. Uh, it may be fall or the end of 2021 before there's enough vaccine for everyone who wants it to get it. Um, but certainly once you start getting the elderly, the vulnerable, um, you can start seeing a big impact even before um, we can stop wearing masks and get back completely to uh, pre-COVID, uh, as close to pre-COVID as we will. Dr. Lewin, someone just texted me, one of our members, and it's a question that I was actually thinking, as you said, there's 160 vaccines, 30 human trials, six in phase three. So if I go to the doctor a year from now and say, I want my COVID vaccine, which of those vaccines, is it, does, do they look at my health history and say, well, this one's better than this one, or is one good for all of us? How do you, what's the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, it's six phase three trials here in the U.S. There are also a number of other ones in Russia and in China and, and elsewhere that are, uh, but, uh, but again, six here in the U.S. And that's going to be a really tough uh, question to answer. And it will sort out over the next couple of years. Um, there, there are going to be a couple of factors that, that go into which vaccine your doctor is probably going to recommend a year from now. Um, one of them is going to be how effective they were. Uh, all of the phase three trials will give us um, an idea of effectiveness. The, uh, the way that um, the, the bar that's been set by the FDA is a 50% effectiveness bar to consider approval. And that's actually very standard for vaccines. You know, you think, you know, vaccine, you get a vaccine, you're 100% protected. Yeah. Most vaccines are, you know, if it's a good vaccine, it's the 70 to 80%. Uh, there are a few that are really, you know, 100%. The key is once enough people have gotten a vaccine, there's not enough disease spreading around that you're likely to get it regardless. Um, so 50% is the, is the base, but some will probably be better. And so we'll know from the phase three trials, which are the most effective. Probably um, equally important will be what's the safety profile. Again, some people will have reactions and hopefully it'll be a fever and some chills and things that go away in a, you know, over a couple of days. Um, but we'll have an idea in a year, what's the safety profile of these different vaccines. And my guess is that some of them will have more problems associated with them than others. And by a year from now, we'll start to know that. By the end of this year, calendar end of, uh, in, in three or four months, we may not yet know what the long-term safety is but clearly before uh, something's approved, it will be considered um, safe from that short term, from the six month kind of perspective. And likely that will be, um, again, the long-term side effects will be highly unlikely at that point. So we'll, we'll know a lot more in a year than we will in three months when the first vaccines are approved. Got it. Thank, thank you. I, I appreciate it. It clears up a lot. One of the things you mentioned that I want to turn to Candace and ask you about, you talked about the fact you're having a hard time getting particularly the minority community to participate in those trials. And I think what we've seen through COVID, not just in Georgia, but around the country, is this disproportionate impact on minorities. I did a, a quality town hall this morning with Santiago Marquez from the uh, Latin American Association about the impact of COVID on his population in Georgia. And so Candace, I, I'm I love your thoughts on this. You know, why are some of those communities disproportionately impacted, so severely affected? You know, what's the role and responsibility of our health systems to address what, quite frankly, has probably already been there, these health inequalities, but now we're seeing it in a new light, like we're seeing so many other inequality issues out there. Um, you know, what are your general system, you know, ideas and what's your system doing to try to address some of these, uh, these systemic issues? Uh, thank you, Chris. Yes, um, as we um, uh, already had been well aware uh, in the healthcare industry and within Wildstar Health System, you know, through our Center for Healthcare Equity, we already knew that we had members of our our community that were uh, more at risk and more vulnerable. And part of uh, our learning, even before the pandemic, was you really cannot have a one size fits all approach to how you communicate or how you 
um, work with uh, individuals and with their families and their different communities to get them into healthcare. So with the pandemic, it's really cast a light on that. And I remember early on when we were comparing experiences across the metro Atlanta area, you know, first of all, we saw that our elderly, we were seeing a lot more uh, elderly. Uh, and so we put our attention on the nursing homes. So we partnered up with public health and we did a full court press to work with our nursing homes because what we noticed was the nursing homes that were part of our systems that used the same approaches to staffing and to some of the environment of care considerations, we weren't seeing the same outbreak or prevalence. So we went in to partner with the public health and with the nursing home. And then we started to look at it with our different uh, populations, just the black um, members of our community, our Hispanic members of the community, we found that there was a higher prevalence. And we were also seeing higher mortality with um, those members of our community. And as we talked with our uh, congregational health leaders and with our public health and our different groups, community groups, and this is where our local officials were very helpful to us and our chambers and to identifying who were these different, where these neighborhoods were. Because when we did this you know, shelter in place and we said to everyone, go home, you know, shelter in place, order off Amazon, you know, and uh, remote work, what we had to think about is that some of our members of our community don't have access to internet. They don't have access to those basic um, um, of life. And the, the, so we had to go and problem solve it differently. So we actually took testing to them. We actually had to go in um, to provide them with masks and with the different resources for the hand washing and talk to them about why this um, social distancing when they have a loved one who had the virus was so important. And so we found that partnering with our faith leaders became an important source. And we do think, even as John and I've talked about getting people in for the vaccine trials, you know, this trust um, is so important in healthcare. And so we have to make sure that we're getting to the individuals and communicating in their language and to also get people with us that will can um, help them understand why this is so important. And so we are making very targeted efforts uh, in our partnerships. We have over 450 partners in the community through our Center for Health Equity, and we focus on food insecurity. We focus on housing. We're focusing on getting them their medications. Something as simple as even if they have the medication, if they don't have refrigeration, if they don't have some of those basics uh, in their household, then they will not be able to have the drug that requires that refrigeration for their illness or their care. So uh, this is an area that we have put a lot of emphasis on, even with the schools, uh, as well as with our businesses. And what we also found on this, Chris, is this is not just something that affects our community and our patients coming in to our hospitals, our doctor's offices, our outpatient. This also affects our team members because our member of our team members are uh, in jobs that they also have these same challenges. So we had to work on making sure that even if they're protecting themselves from the virus, they still have the food they need, the housing and the other resources to help them with their life as well as with their um, their physical health. And so the, um, as our role as a health system has become paramount in this. And as we called to action with our local officials, and we said, we need you to help us with the spread. And as John said, we came up with our three W's on that because we knew as we called to action with our uh, different community members and said, um, right now what we're seeing with our healthcare workers is it's the community acquired COVID-19. Not that they're, they're not getting it at work because we're protecting them at work. It was many of them were having to quarantine and it was affecting our staffing because they got it through the community. So we said we need everyone to follow the wash your hands, wear the face mask and watch your distance and time because it will just help us all to decrease the spread so that we can have the healthcare resources when you need them. And we also wanted to emphasize 
We take care of COVID-19 patients, but there are so many other healthcare needs that are vital and we need people to get in and get their care so they can get it in a, a timely manner so they don't come in in a more in, you know, super sick mode. And so that's our messaging through the season right now that we think is gonna be critical. And we're just really proud of the support we've gotten from our community. Yeah, okay, and and just, oh, I could just add, add just a, a little bit, Chris, is, uh, you know, just uh, just because Emory's uh, has, has a lot of similarities in what we've done and a couple couple bit of differences which might be of interest. You know, we, we obviously, we had about 70% of our COVID patients have been African-American. Our Latinx patients, less so um, in, in our areas. But we have, you know, between our... Uh, Emory Decatur Hospital, Emory Hillendale Hospital, Emory Midtown. We have a big impact in, the south, in south Atlanta, South DeKalb. Um, and uh, back in April, one of our board members who is African-American said, hey, you know, I, you know, I'm in my community. I look, no one's wearing a mask. No one really is taking this seriously. Can you do something to help? So we pulled together a multidisciplinary team of providers, uh, clinicians, administrators, leaders, across the Woodruff Health Sciences Center of Emory University to examine the issue. And they actually formed um, data, data analytics to look at where are hotspots and blind spots in the community to really start to tar target mostly those South Atlanta, South DeKalb communities uh, with three different programs. One was communication. We got sports stars, Matt Ryan, a number of sports stars from the African-American community as well as students, other community members, physician leaders in the area to go with the message. This is not a hoax. This is real. This is dangerous. Do what you need to to help protect your family, your friends, your neighbors. Um, we ended up uh, with a number of community events similar to what Candace has noted, lending our expertise to the topic. And we, interestingly, we partnered with a company called Access Mobile to send text messages um, to be able to communicate directly to that community in terms of safe practices, the three W's, as we said, um, increasing the reach of accurate information on prevention and linking people to community-based programs, faith-based programs, so other services to bolster healthy behavior. So just a number of uh, ways, again, similar to Candace, that we've tried to reach out, tried to address the disproportionate share that African-American and, and Latinx community. Latinx, yeah. Right. Thank you, Paul. I want to bring you into this conversation, give you an opportunity to comment on that. But I also want to ask, you know, one of the underlying problems in health inequality is the chronic, you know, conditions that we see out there. And I know a lot of folks had to, they weren't able to go in and have those different procedures or get the care they needed because of COVID. I'm curious from your perspective, anything you want to mention on the other, but you know, how has that impacted your system? What does that look like for those people that do have chronic conditions? And how does that impact you for the rest of this year? And going into next year of trying to play catch up with all of those procedures that people need, but they've had to postpone. A short comment on, on the previous question. I, I can't compliment Dr. Lewin and Candace enough for, for what they've said. And just so the people on this phone, their social accountability barometer in this state is extremely high and they're to be complimented for that um, as well as their board of trustees. The only thing I would echo is we're in southeast Georgia, somewhat of a rural area we serve. Um, the logistics distribution of the vaccine with non-traditional populations is going to take non-traditional methods um, because they receive uh, information differently, their trust levels differently, so uh, here, uh, we're using the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce as an example. We've already got a coalition uh, going on. All of African-American uh, churches across the public health departments there. But one of the things that we're working on is not having them come to the hospital. We're getting out of the hospital, and we're going to go into the neighborhoods and make it as convenient as possible for them, because we think that's where we'll have a higher uh, success rate uh, particularly as we get out of Savannah and go to the more rural markets. Uh, on the question about um, chronic conditions, we, we didn't see that that much. Chronic conditions kept coming into the hospital. 
during this epidemic. But what we're concerned about are those non-acute conditions that are kind of under the radar that if people don't come back in and re-enter the healthcare system, or whether it's colonoscopies or mammographies, that those things are gonna pop up later, later downstream. So uh, we have spent a lot of time um, having two SKUs in our health system, which is 150 bed infectious disease hospital, and then 600 beds in a med surge hospital. And now we're um, doing our messaging that A, it's safe to come back into these hospitals in this state. Uh, it's probably the safest place one can come. And please don't kick the can down the road on what has traditionally been elective diagnostics because you're just delaying what is in, inevitable. That's been a little bit of a challenge, I'll tell you. We're, we're clawing back in terms of um, volumes and, and things like that but there's still a cadre of, of patients, particularly the elderly, who not in the chronic care phase that are just reluctant to come in. So we've taken out uh, TV ads and radio ads and, and things like that, both with us and Memorial, because we do it together because it's really a health system issue. It's not uh, the brand of St. Joseph's Candler so much because we are healthcare providers that it is, is time to come back um, we are really pushing telemedicine big time. Uh, we were up to about 70% uh, March and April when this thing really hit. Um, it, it's gone down to about 35, 40% now, but we're, we're working to get that up to where we think it can be so that people can conveniently take that medium and, and use it um, to get early health care. So that, that's been kind of exciting. And I'll have to say, um, I think it's generational, so to speak. I've kind of morphed to it, uh, but I'll have to say my four children are kind of all over it. They're in their 30s, they like it. And I think as a byproduct of the pandemic, Chris, that particular deployment method is here to stay. Well, and like so many other industry sectors, what we've heard is you're accelerating the access of that innovation that might have been five to 10 years. You're now doing it in six months to two years. So, well, thank all of you. Thank Paul, thanks. I want to bring in Dr. Gordon now to give us a little bit of a national perspective. Dr. Gordon, you've heard from three of our premier healthcare leaders in Georgia. I'm sure you've heard similar stories uh, around the country, but love to get your feedback on what those emerging trends are, what we're looking like as we move into 2021, and then give uh, John and Candace and Paul any opportunity to, to ask questions of you or to jump in and give their perspective on your, your perspective. Great. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share. As you might know, Deloitte is the largest healthcare consulting company in the world, and we've had the privilege of working with a number of Georgia-based firms and healthcare organizations, uh, both in the private sector, public sector, and um, it's just been a privilege to be part of the, the community there. So um, what I thought I would do is to more or less come up with a top 10 list. So I, I have been serving on a number of clients, both governmental agencies and private healthcare agencies. And a lot of these trends transcend, but I wanted to um, just give a quick flyover of the first eight and then spend just a few minutes on, on the last two. And some of these, or most of them, we've already talked about to, to some degree. So um, <clears throat> I'll start with number 10. And, and this one is probably uh, an unfortunate byproduct of some of the factors at, at play. And that is that there's been, a I think, an erosion of trust or maybe more of a question of trust uh, in our traditional healthcare experts, uh, especially in the governmental agency. Um, regard and and I know Atlanta and Georgia is a proud home of, of CDC and CDC has been the world's expert on public health and unfortunately some some of the things have called into question um, maybe the objectivity or whatever both at the CDC and FDA and some other organizations for example posting things and, and taking them down around whether asymptomatic contacts of people with COVID should be tested or not 
whether COVID can be spread airborne. And by the way, the answer to both of those is yes. But um, you know, I think it, it's a shame, and I do think it will be um, a, a bit of a digging out of this, um, especially as we get to vaccine distribution. So that was number 10. Um, number nine, and as you mentioned, Chris, these things are trends that are just accentuated, accentuated and accelerated by COVID. Number nine is really the uh, blurring of lines between healthcare plans, healthcare providers, life sciences companies, and technological companies. So healthcare plans are getting into providing care, healthcare providers are getting into um, covering risk and financing healthcare, and of course technology companies are getting into the actual provision of healthcare, not just the technological part of it. So we're seeing that, um, and, and COVID has, has accelerated that. Um, <clears throat> number eight is the investment in public health infrastructure. And we know it's been underfunded. I used to work at CDC for a couple years, and while I was there, it changed its name to the Centers for Disease Control to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And unfortunately for prevention, when you do your job well, nothing happens. And, and therefore, it's not a great funding uh, platform because you're having to compete with, with other diseases and other platforms. Um, and so prevention is hard to fund, but we see the importance of maintaining that funding um, through this pandemic. Number seven is the um, relationship, obviously, the social determinants of health with health outcomes. And we all know that um, employment status, living situation, nutrition, all those things are deeply impact uh, health outcomes, and we're seeing that even more so with COVID. Number six, uh, Paul touched on, and that's the, around the delayed care. And the questions around delayed care um, and the decrease in utilization, both of acute care and others, is number one, um, are folks getting that care elsewhere? Number two, is it really necessary? We know that a number of things that we do in healthcare are not necessary and not value added. As a physician, I'd like to say everything I do is, is completely value added, but I know sometimes it's hard to tell. Um, and, and then what will the rebound look like? And when that rebounds, will people come in in worse shape than if they, if they got in care earlier? Number five is um, the, a good one, and that is our ability to care for COVID patients. And I think that you all can um, testify to the fact that the mortality rate of hospitalized COVID patients has gone down. And a lot of credit is due to our healthcare system <clears throat> to be able to figure that out. And in fact, the hospital, has, hospitalization mortality rate has gone down by about 30 to 50%, which is great credit to our healthcare system. Uh, number four, we um, haven't talked about a lot, but it's really the supply chain. And that supply chain, our dependence on other countries for the essentials of, of healthcare, whether it be pharmaceutical ingredients or supplies or whatever, we need to um, make sure that, that we're independent um, of other countries for, for crises like this. And likewise, we see other countries drawing upon some of our manufacturing ability for things that we manufacture like uh, PPE and other things. And, and then it becomes almost an ethical dilemma for us. Number three is around workforce. We've talked a lot about that. Um, and I certainly commend all the good work that, that those here on this panel have done in, in terms of protecting their workforce. And as Dr. Lewin mentioned, the healthcare worker is gonna be first in line, the frontline workers for um, vaccine. And they will be the ones distributing the vaccine to a large degree um, as well. So um, hats off to all that's been done to protect our healthcare workers. So, Number two, and I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on this um, and on virtual, um, and, and that is the disparity in care. We've talked a great deal about that um, today, but I do think that COVID-19 has further accentuated the disparity in care that we see in this country um, based on persons of color and, and vulnerable um, populations. And unfortunately, we're seeing COVID-19 adversely and disproportionately affect those populations. The medical literature is replete now with discussions around the relationship between social determinants of health, racism, and race, which are different things, and the, and the structural racism that exists um, in our system. And, and Candace, I have to commend you for the examples that, that you gave. 
one of the things that, that really hit me as you were talking is you're going out to communities, vulnerable communities, and reaching out, out to them and partnering um, with, with faith communities and others to really create that partnership. And we do things that we don't necessarily intend, but things like when we, when we um, sponsor um, drive-in testing, that sounds like a good thing because it protects our healthcare workers, um, and it is. But at some degree, it also puts at disadvantage those who rely on public transportation and may not have cars or, or ability to drive in. So we need to think about those things. We, we did a project um, with one client that looked at the relationship between redlining that was done, as you know, um, unfortunately, in the mid 20th century and at the, the current state of those communities. And those communities still have higher prevalence of unemployment and the social determinants of health um, that put them at risk. So the decisions that were made 50 and 60 years ago still are impacting communities in adverse ways. And so it's important to think about both the persistence and the structural biases that are built into some of the decisions. So we need to understand those. We need to peel back what really is at the, at the root of these um, causes of disparities in care. And more importantly, take action. It's not gonna be easy because a lot of these things are built into our institutions and we need to take action to resolve some of these disparities in healthcare. And then the last one, um, number one, it's not because it's any less important than the, the previous one, but I think just because it's, it's more top of the list. And, and that is the, the virtual care piece. And um, as Paul mentioned, his experience is what we saw. We saw organizations going from 5% of care um, virtually to 70% overnight, basically a, a flip of the switch. And um, it's been very tremendous to, to see that. Um, there are obviously advantages and disadvantages, but it is a, a, a trend that will be with us. And most organizations we're thinking are settling in probably about 20% of their care given virtually but that will continue to increase as technology progresses and as uh, models of care change. And it's, it's um, quite revolutionary. I think um, as, uh, as was mentioned that both physicians and consumers in many regards like virtual visits, especially in some specialties like, like psychiatry. And what we're seeing is that the, the digitalization of healthcare and health information makes the practice of medicine um, devoid of space and time. So you can, you can outsource specialty consults, for example, and you can read images anywhere, anywhere in the globe. And so as time progresses, and as we see further development of artificial intelligence, and we see further development of um, deep learning we combine that with, with big data, it's going to profoundly impact the, the practice of medicine. And we're just at the beginning of this. And for example, uh, we're, we're seeing machine systems that can read images more accurately and certainly more faster than, than a typical human eye connected to the brain. So um, as artificial intelligence, big data begins to relieve physicians of some of the cognitive work, the both the interpretation of images and the um, diagnostic and therapeutic recommendations, especially when that's combined with the overall genetic code, it will be revolutionary for how we practice medicine, how physicians practice medicine, and will enable physicians to become what we call the empathetic healer, in which EQ is more important or is prioritized or indexed on more than IQ which I think for, for many physicians will be, will be a welcome change to be that healer and not just entering data and that sort of thing. So um, I'm gonna stop there in the interest of time, but um, I really appreciate the opportunity and appreciate the discussion. It's been great. Thank you, Chris. Dr. Gordon, thank you. That's all great. I, I took lots of notes and we'll be following up on that. I want to give uh, Paul Candace and Dr. Lewin an opportunity to respond either to, and here's my final question for all three of you. You're looking at the next six to 12 months, uh, which are going to be, you're going to have all these 10 things that Dr. Gordon talked about. I've also heard from your peers that you're worried about a significant flu season. You're worried about a second wave. And I've heard from quite a few CEOs that they're actually worried financially about second and third quarter of next year 
once the federal dollars run out and we're in a different place. So I'm curious, what are those big concerns, your focus here? Paul, we'll start with you uh, as we go through the next few months. Thank, thank you, Chris. Uh, as a prelude to that, that answering that, I, I want to say to everyone listening on this call, um, how important hospitals are to communities. They're actually indispensable. Um, we, at the front line, you've all seen caregivers and your sister and the great job that they have done. But in communities in this state, hospitals cannot be replaced. They're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Skies like today, hurricanes, and now a pandemic. Um, periodically, um, legislation comes about that kind of dents that can a little. And, and I'd have to thank uh, you, Chris, and the, and the board of the Georgia Chamber, because I, I think you're sensitive to hospitals as not only an economic engine in this state, which they are, they're usually the largest employers um, in communities, but also that um, they are responsible for taking care of the community. Um, financially, you mentioned, that's one of the reasons uh, we're upside down about 35% of what the money we got from the CARES Act. So we had to dip into reserves. And that's one of the reasons why hospitals in this state have a rainy day fund, because they need to dip into that um, periodically, uh, not for any other reason, but just to keep the doors open and serve the community. So I, I'd ask the audience to uh, keep that in mind. Uh, a healthy hospital not only generates good health for people, but it serves good economic health because it's basically a partner with business development as we're trying to get people in the state. And I see this in spades because I'm the incoming chairman of the Savannah Economic Development Authority. And when we're on the red carpet tour, they want to see the land and the tax abatement and all of that, and they want to know about healthcare. So um, we're your partner, uh, and we thank you for your support. On the things that bother me, uh, I'll just mention manpower in nursing. And we had to dip in to the traditional ways, um, which is getting contract nurses. We hire every nurse out of Georgia Southern. But that wasn't enough. Um, we've got 40 or 50 Filipino nurses in here right now. I think we need to look at that, frankly. Like we look at making PPE equipment over in China. There's no reason why that sh shouldn't happen in America. In my opinion, there's no reason why we shouldn't train all the nurses the state needs here in Georgia. And from partnering with Georgia Southern, what I hear is it's not because of a lack of qualified candidates, <laughs> the lack of faculty positions, that we need to open that up a little, and that will open up the classrooms. Because why would we want Georgians to go to school in some other state, and then that, that community gets their hooks in them, and, and they stay. So I think as we get into the legislation session, or as you deal with the chancellor, you know, it's just to ask them for, for their support and, and consider this, because that was one thing we learned in addition to the hole in the donut on PPE, right. was getting enough staff. That's great. And, and I've heard that consistently and we'll continue to work on it. Candace, what about from your perspective? Um, I just, um, first I wanted to um, add on to Dr. Gordon's topics about the virtual. The other thing that we've seen accelerated in it, we've shared the same experience with Paul on the telehealth um, is on the remote working. I mean, we went to remote working overnight, okay? And for us to, it was not something that we had adopted. Um, we had it going on in some of our areas, but overnight we put almost 5,000 people um, at home. And we've had some really um, uh, interesting learnings. In our revenue cycle, we've seen improvement in productivity when they're working from home. So we're, we're now looking at continuing the remote working. And then obviously that'll play, put in place um, some of the 
uh, synergies of that as you look at not needing as much office space and that. So I just wanted to add that is another thing that I think staying with us. Um, and it took a pan worldwide pandemic to accelerate us in that front too. The other is I wanna um, amplify um, uh, Paul's comments about the financial health of hospitals and health systems. And uh, we're, we're blessed to have a very strong um, healthcare in Georgia but that comes with good planning and being very good stewards of um, every dollar we spend, every dollar we invest. Because we have these reserves, we've been able to um, make the investments and to put the um, you know, dollars where needed to staff, to the PPE, to the testing, so that we can not only protect our team members, but also our community. Also, all these different things that we're doing in the community require investment on our part if we're going to be a good partner. You know, you can't just bring, um, you know, your talents. You usually have to bring resources to those solutions. So I just would um, echo how important it is to understand that the not-for-profit health systems, as well as our colleagues on the for-profit side, uh, we have a lot of unfunded mandates that we bring to the table every day and we will continue to bring because it's the right thing to do, but we'll only have so much reserves before um, we will be at a point where that might, we, it might impact our ability to do sort of the whole community that we do today. And then lastly, on your question about what keeps me up at night or, you know, as we look ahead is um, when we started this mission, the worldwide pandemic, it was our people, it was PPE and it was testing. As I sit here talking to you today, it's our people, it's PPE and it's testing because we have to make sure that we have those different um, resources in order to be ready to, to pivot and to deal with whatever happens as we make our best outlooks, um, as we compare notes on that. And as I said to the team, we started out, this was a um, you know, marathon. Then I said in the summer, now it's an Ironman, you know, because we ought to be able to do all these different things. And so what I do see is though, our people are at the heart of everything we do. And they, that's, that's who I serve, that's who I know the rest of us who are here today, but they're getting tired. And they're, you know, we need to make sure that we continue to express that appreciation, but also look at ways that we can support them. And this is not just our, our healthcare workers. We have our public work workers, we have our teachers, all of those who are on that front line, helping educate our children, but also then provide this healthcare. So I do think that this well-being aspect of how we look out for each other as John mentioned earlier, beyond the protecting each other, it's how are we uh, looking out for each other over this um, overall, this whole uh, worldwide pandemic. Because as you heard on the vaccine, there we're still we still have a long ways to go here. Right. Dr. Lewin, your final thoughts. Okay, thanks. And I, you know, and I, I agree with you know Paul and Candace's comments. I'll I'll go in a slightly different direction then, as sort of as the academic. Uh, health system, uh, in, you know, here in Georgia, the major one, we, you know, it's the role of science. I, I think Dr. Gordon, I, I love your, your list, your top 10 list is, was great. I agree with all of them. We're actually at 30%. We do, we do over 3,000 telehealth visits a day right now, up from about 150 in a month before this started. So it was from zero to 100 uh, speed in, in, in no time. But what, you know, the one, uh, the other area is the role of science, the important role of science. You know, we, we, are, we now have over $100 million in NIH funding for COVID at Emory. Um, we're in the number three university in the country for COVID research. And in terms of finding cures, in terms of finding treatments, we just finished an uh, with Eli Lilly um, monoclonal antibody trial, which is really, we're one of uh, two centers, three centers, I think it's three centers in the country doing it. It's, it's really remarkable how science is going to impact. And I think it's just a matter of keeping the politics out of the science. And let's, let's sit down, let's, um, let's let science reign, let the CDC, let the FDA do what they've done well for, for decades and decades, and really um, 
get back to making a difference. Um, the workforce is my biggest concern, keeping me up at night, as Paul and Candace said, um, not because of uh, ill health, because we now can protect them from COVID. It's just because of the severe shortage we have in Georgia. And uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So thank you, Chris, for inviting me. I know the time is just noon, so I'll stop right here. Thanks. Well, listen, th thank you and thanks to all of you. And I think my takeaway was if we can keep politics out of it, we might be able to fix it. That, that can apply to so much uh, in our world today. But thank all of you for what you do every day. May God bless you. I want to continue to thank our, our partners at Wells Fargo and AT&T for their sponsorship. Remind you uh, to get your tickets for our Rural Prosperity Summit on October 7th and to continue to follow us on our podcast as well as our live roundtable.